My Bible is open to Mark, the 14th chapter, beginning at verse 3. And we'll begin there in just a moment. As you're turning there, may I suggest to you that this is a story of Mary pouring expensive oil on the head and the feet of our Lord. Perhaps you are very familiar with that story. She was highly criticized for such a waste. And Jesus responded saying, let her alone, beginning at verse 6. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. I want us to look at the highlighted phrase on the screen before you. She has done what she could. Here was a case of where Mary was taking this expensive oil. We'll talk about that a little bit later, how expensive that was, how much it may have been. She breaks the flask and she pours the oil upon his feet and upon his head and wipes his feet with the hairs of her head. And the response was, what a waste this was. And Jesus said a number of things that we'll pay attention to as the lesson goes on, but he didn't make this point. She has done what she could. Let's talk this morning about she has done what she could. Let me ask you a question. Have you done what you could? If, if Jesus were to defend you as he defended this woman, would he say concerning you, he has done what he could. She has done what she could. Have you done what you could? Let me ask you another question. Are you doing what you can? That's present tense. Let me ask you another question. Are you or will you do what you can in the future. Have you done what you could? Are you doing what you can? Will you do what you can? Powerful question. Three things we're going to study this morning as we look at this story. In Mark chapter 14, we're going to look at the context. What is going on in the context where Jesus made that statement? Some things in the context will give us some insight to the significance of that point. And then we're going to look at the meaning of that phrase. The context of that phrase, the meaning of that phrase. What does it mean she has done what she could? And then thirdly, we're going to make application of that phrase to Mary and to us. So let's start with the context. By the context, I want us to start by looking at parallel accounts. And so we're at Mark 14. That's the first account. We didn't read the entire account, so that was highlighted on the screen before you. Let's start with Mark, and then we'll back up and look at the parallel account. Because the parallel accounts now give us some information in one that's not given in another, and we have to harmonize those accounts. So let's start at verse 3 of Mark 14. This is our text. Put your marker there, finger there. We'll keep coming back to Mark 14. Starting at verse 3, being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, 
As he sat at the table, a woman came, bringing an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. And there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For the poor you have with you always and whenever you wish to do them good. Uh, but me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, this woman, what this woman has done will be told as memorial to her. That's Mark's account of the story. Now you see on the screen that Matthew chapter 26 records the same story, but there's some information there that's not recorded in Mark's account. So let's go and read Matthew chapter 26 beginning at verse 6. Matthew chapter 26 beginning at verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. And when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said, Why, are you, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, where this gospel is preached in this whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. We'll talk about the differences in the accounts in just a moment. You see on the screen Luke chapter 7. So let's go to Luke chapter 7. Here is a story of an anointing of Jesus by a woman in the house of Simon. And so are we immediately think parallel, but let's see. Beginning at verse 36, and one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Sounds familiar. And she took and she stood at his feet behind him weeping and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hairs of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, one more passage we have on the screen. This time in John chapter 12 beginning at verse 1 through verse 8. There's more information here than we've seen in the other accounts. In fact, there's some details. It's a little longer account here. Verse 6 says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one who sat at the table with him. And Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, 
anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Then he said, not this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he had used to take money, take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always, but me you do not have always. Now there we have the parallel accounts to our story in Mark chapter 14. Let's take a little look at, at some variation of the accounts. Matthew's account says this took place in Bethany. So in Mark, so in John. But this account now in Luke 7 took place in Nain. That's in the Galilean ministry. Much earlier in the time of Jesus. And what is recorded in Matthew and in Mark and in John is during that later Judean ministry, during Passion Week, the week of the Passover. But there's another difference. There's Simon the leper, Simon the leper, but John's account says that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were there. Didn't say it was their house, but it was there. They were there, they were present. Not mentioned though in Matthew and in Mark. But Luke's account says something about Simon being a Pharisee. Seemingly could be the same Simon, but they seemingly are different Simons. We already have a different time, a different place. We have a woman, a woman identified as Mary in John's account, but the woman in Luke's account is a sinner. Not hardly the Mary that we read about in John chapter 12. One account says it was his head, another account says it was his head. John's account says it was his feet, and so the feet thereof in Luke chapter 7. Luke's account doesn't mention the value of the oil, but it was much, 300 denarii in both of the accounts. As we look at the timetable, Luke's account must not be parallel, as some would have thought. And so it is talking about an earlier anointing. And so when we look at the parallel accounts, we actually have two parallel accounts, or three parallel accounts. We have Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke doesn't mention this story. He mentions another, but not this same story. So it's taking place in Bethany. It was at the house of Simon, who was a leper. Doesn't mean he was a leper at the time, but who had been a leper, and that's how he was identified. There was a woman that anointed Jesus. She's identified as Mary. She anointed both his head and his feet as we harmonize the accounts, and the value of that was about 300 denarii. I will talk about the significance of that in a moment. Let's talk about the place. Now I know the parallel accounts and some of the information found in the parallel accounts. Where did this take place? Well, all three accounts, or two accounts, that is Matthew and Mark, mentioned it took place in Bethany. Bethany is in Judea. And the other account that we read in Luke 7 took place up in Galilee. So this is a place near Jerusalem. In fact, less than two miles from Jerusalem in the city of Bethany, or the region of Bethany, is where this anointing took place. Jesus had come there during Passion Week or the week of the Passover. Here's a modern picture of what Bethany may look like. And so it was in the region of Bethany where this took place. Now, I'm more interested in the time because there seems to be a little discrepancy, apparently, between Matthew, Mark, and in John. Matthew mentions it was during Passion Week at the Passover. That is, as we look at Matthew chapter 26, he's already entered Jerusalem. He's during Passion Week, and then this story is told. Matthew 26, right in the middle of that. Mark's account says it was during the same time, but John says it was six days before the Passover. 
Let's take a look at what Linsky says. Since six days before the Passover is not in conflict with the two days before the Passover mentioned in Matthew chapter 26, 2 and Mark 14, 1. Those are our parallel accounts. Neither two evangelists give the date of the supper at Bethany. They report a saying of Jesus that he would be betrayed and crucified at the feast of the Passover two days hence. While at the very same time, the Jewish authorities resolved not to destroy him at the time of the Passover. Then, without following the chronological sequence of events, these two evangelists, he's talking about Matthew and Mark, report the supper. Matthew merely says, now when Jesus was in Bethany, and Mark being in Bethany, neither fixing the date. John supplements the other records on the date. So when did this take place? It was six days before the Passover, according to John's account. Now, why does Mark mention this story in the narrative? You say, well, why, why raise the question? Because we, we often think that the gospel accounts are in chronological order, and what's mentioned next is, is something that happened next in sequence. And that's not the, that was not the purpose of any of the gospels being written, to have a full, detailed chronology. Often it's thematic, and there is a message being delivered, and they tell a story of something that happened earlier or maybe later to fit the theme that's being described. So here's some of the reasons why it may be mentioned here. While you're in Mark chapter 14, if you've left there, let's go back to Mark chapter 14. Back in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 to 9, you have the story of this anointing. Following that, immediately beginning at verse 10, we have the story of Judas making plans to betray. So seemingly in this context, there is a contrast between her love and Judas' betrayal. What a contrast there is. You see the thematic placement rather than chronological placement necessarily. But furthermore, here is the preparation for his death. This is Passion Week as we mentioned, the week of the Passover just before his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so preparing him for his death, mentioned by Jesus in the context. And furthermore, John's record of this shows Judas' attitude toward money. Before he betrays, he's a man who'd been a thief. He's interested more in money than his allegiance to the Lord. Perhaps those reasons are why it's mentioned in this narrative. So if you've left Mark chapter 14, let's go back there and let's work our way through the story. What's going on in this story? There was an anointing that took place in the city of Bethany during this last week of Christ while he was here on earth. The beginning of the story is condensed by Matthew and Mark. And it starts with the anointing. But John gives us some insight. So let's go back to John chapter 2, or John chapter 12 rather. And I want you to notice that there was a meal with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. This is the same Lazarus that in chapter 11 had been raised from the dead. He's sitting at the table with Jesus. He's not mentioned at all in Matthew or in Mark. And so there is a meal with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now, it says it was in the house. Mark's account and Matthew's account says it was in the home of Simon the leper. We don't know much about him. And so scholars begin to, and commentators begin to speculate Perhaps he was in the home of Judas's father because in John chapter 12, it mentions that Judas had a fit about how much money was spent, the son of Simon. That may be. Why did he mention Simon right here in John's account at verse 4? So perhaps this is in the home of Judas's father and Mary and Martha are there. 
Others suggest that perhaps Simon is not the same Simon that's mentioned at verse 4, but he could be the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Because Martha is serving, and consequently this may be their household, or at least they're familiar with this household because they're up and serving. Or it may be someone else's, um, some other Simon, we don't know for sure, but it's in that household and that has a meal with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So who is this woman? She's not identified in Mark or in Matthew, but it's named, she's named Mary. It's this Mary of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, those, those uh, siblings. According to chapter 12 and in verse 3, let's back up to John chapter 11, if you will, just for a moment. And notice in John 11 and in verse 2, it was that Mary who anointed Jesus with fragrant oil that wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. This is the Mary we're talking about. As we talk about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this is that, that Mary that we read about in Mark 14, though not identified in Mark chapter 14. Now what's she do? Let's go back to Mark's account because that's the one we're following. Let's go back to Mark chapter 14. And I want you to notice at verse 3 that she took an alabaster flask of pure uh, spikenard. In other words, she, she took this flask. Verse 3 says she broke the flask. The significance of that in a moment. She took that and she anointed the head of Jesus and the feet of Jesus. As we harmonize John's account with Luke and Matthew's account, both the head of Jesus and the feet of Jesus, and took her hair and wiped his feet as she anointed them with this oil. What was the oil? It was pure nard from a plant in India. And she took that and it was an expensive oil. How expensive was it? It was worth 300 denarii. That doesn't mean a lot to many of us. But if you look at the New International Translation of that, it would say a year's wage. Your footnote in the New King James, if you turn over there to John chapter 12 and verse 5, look at your footnote, not footnoted in Mark or in Matthew's account, but it is in John's account, that that would be again a year's wage for the common worker. That's pretty expensive oil. John's account says it was about 12 ounces, verse 5. It was a pound. That's 12 ounces, according to A.T. Robertson. And so here's 12 ounces of this pure nard from India worth about a year's wage. She broke the flask and she anointed both the head and the, the feet of Jesus. Now let's look at verses 4 and 5. We're still in Mark's account. The woman was criticized sharply, the text said. She wasn't just like, why is she doing this? But it says they criticized her sharply. I mean, they were pretty critical of her. Because the question was, why this waste? Who criticized her? Matthew's account says the disciples, plural, criticized her. Mark's account said some criticized her. John's account zeroed in on Judas particularly, perhaps the ringleader of that. Was he the only one? No, there were others saying the same thing. But the reason he was saying this was he's more interested in the money because he'd had the money bag and he's stealing from it. He was a thief. Perhaps we could have sold that, put it in the money bag, and I could have got some of that, stole some of that. That's what his thought was. She was sharply criticized. Now Jesus responded to her critics beginning at verse 6, and here's what he said. He said, leave her alone. Quit criticizing her. She is not worthy to be criticized. Here's why. Here's what she's done. Look at verse 6. She has done good. She took this fragrant oil, this expensive oil, worth a year's salary, and she's anointed my feet and my head. And what she did was good. 
So don't criticize her. Leave her alone. Just back off. That's not all he said. Look at verse 7. He said, the poor you have with you always, perhaps alluding to Deuteronomy 15 and verse 11. But be that as it may, whether he's quoting from that or alluding to that, he said, the poor you always have. The opportunity, you'll have more opportunities for the poor. The opportunity to do good for me is coming to an end soon. The opportunity is short. The poor you always have. He's not minimizing the poor. He's not saying don't take care of the poor. What he's saying is you'll have other opportunities to take care of the poor. Opportunities to do good for me, prepare me for my burial, coming to an end soon. Then verse 8, here's our phrase we're looking at. She has done what she could. Don't, don't criticize her. Back off from her. Leave her alone. She's done good. You have opportunities to do good for others. She has done what she could. What she did was prepare me for my burial. And then notice he said it in verse 9. What she has done, wherever the gospel is preached, will be spoken of as a memorial to her. You say, what's that about? You have a Bible in your hand? Does, the, does your Bible not mention the story of her? That same Bible that's gone all over the world, does it not have the story of her? It's spoken of as a memorial to her. In other words, this story is going to be recorded for everybody to, to read and to hear. Maybe the things, the details of all the disciples were criticizing and all the things that they would have done with the money had they sold that would not be recorded. But her story is recorded for all the world to read. Wherever the gospel is gone, you've got a copy of it in your hand right now. It's told as a memorial to her. Now I know the context. I know what was going on. I know who was there. I don't know who all was there, but I know Mary and Martha and Lazarus were there. There was Simon who had been a leper. He's there. There are other disciples that are there. Judas is there, I know. I know who's there. I know the occasion. I know what the woman did. I know the criticism that was offered, and I know the defense that Jesus gave. Let's talk about that meaning of that phrase. Let's go back to Mark chapter 14. Look at verse 8. You might underline or highlight in your Bible. She has done what she could. She's done what she could. What does that mean? What that means is she acted on the basis of the opportunity that she had. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, for the poor you have with you always. He's talking about opportunity there. Now, there's going to be other opportunities to take care of the poor. The opportunity to do something for me and prepare me for my burial is soon coming to an end. So she acted on the basis of the opportunity that she had. She did what she could. But that's not all it means. It also suggests that she acted on the basis of what she possessed. She not only seized the opportunity, but she acted on the basis of what she had. She had access to a pound, 12 ounces, of spikenard worth 300 denarii. And she acted on the basis of what she possessed. Those are two different principles. And what I want you to see is she has done what she could means she took those two principles and put them together. Here is the opportunity that I have. Here is that which I possess. And I'm going to take my possession and put it with the opportunity and use and seize that opportunity. What does it mean? She 
acted on the basis of the opportunity and act on the basis of what she possessed. A.T. Robertson said this. He is a Greek scholar. And he's commenting, not as a commentator, but he's commenting upon what does this phrase mean. He says it literally means what she had, she did. What she had, she did. In other words, she coupled her possession with her opportunity. What she had, her possession, she did opportunity. She put them together. Bracker and Nida commented upon that. I won't read the entire detail, but it takes that same phrase. Literally, it means what she had, she did. And notice at the end that they say that Art Gingrich call attention to the fact the full phrase includes infinitive, etc. And meaning simply that what she was able to do, she did. That's what that means. She's done what she could. What does that mean? She took her possessions, what she had, and she did something with that. She acted upon it. What she had, she did. She took her possession and coupled it with her opportunity. What she was able to do, she did. It means that she went to the limit of her ability. Look at that phrase again. What she had, she did. She went to the limit of her ability. She pushed. Notice what she did not do. She didn't take this pound of spikenard and said, you know what, it's very expensive. And I might use it for another opportunity. I might sell it and help preach the gospel with that. I have other opportunities. I'm going to take just a little bit of that and anoint the feet and just a dab of that and anoint his head. But I'm going to save a good bit of that or at least a portion or even half of that for another occasion. She went to the limit of her abilities. She pushed as far as she could go. Don't reject what Linsky says until you get to the end. And I think you will agree. Linsky said, Jesus is not applying to Mary the general proposition of doing what one can do. You say, I thought that's what this was about. Do whatever you can do. She did what she could. You do what you can do. And this guy said, that's not the point. So we should also not apply the, this word of Jesus by urging everyone to do what they can in the work of the church. The errors go, uh, go far beyond that. When the one opportunity came to Mary, she not only was ready saw and embraced it, but she went to the limit of her ability in meeting that opportunity. In fact, she would have done more if it had been possible. I think Linsky captured the thought. She pushed to the limit of her abilities. She went as far as she could go. The reason she didn't pour more oil on his head is because the oil and the flask was empty. I like what Linsky said, in fact, she would have done more if it had been possible. What if she'd had a second flask? She probably would have broken and used it because she's going to the limit of her ability. She has done what she could. What she had, she did. She gave her best. Was there other oil she had access to, perhaps? If you have 
if you have 12 ounces of a fragrant oil that's worth the, a year's salary, get your calculator out sometime and just do whatever minimum wage is. What is it, seven something? And do 40 hours a week times 50 weeks a year, 52 weeks a year, whatever. And at minimum wage, see what that comes to. And what if you had this all worth whatever minimum wage would be worth? A year's salary. There may have been other oils, but this must have been her best. I can't imagine having much more than that. She has done what she could. Now, I know the context, and I know the meaning of what that phrase means. Let's see the application. Let's start with Mary, because that's where he applied it. He pointed to her and said, she has done what she could. The implication is we ought to do what we can, but let's start with Mary. She has done what she could. What's it saying about Mary? It says something about her opportunities. Barclay said, love can see that there are things, the chance to do which comes only once. There are some opportunities you might not have again. Mary apparently saw that. She seized an opportunity that was going to soon pass. That's the point of verse 7, the poor you have with you always. There are other opportunities. He's not saying don't take care of the poor. He's saying... Take care of the poor, but there's going to be other opportunities for that. This opportunity is soon going to be gone. Me, you do not have always. Here is an opportunity that may only come once. No indication that she's thinking, you know what? I don't know. This is such an expensive oil. Maybe next time I'll do that for Jesus. There is no next time. The chance to do may only come once. Notice that she acted quickly. In contrast to our planning and thinking and calculating and never get it done. Do you ever find yourself doing that, whether it's religious things or, or whatever it may be, that, that you, you talk about something and you plan it and you calculate and you figure the cost and you recalculate and you replan and you reschedule and you rethink and you replan and you rebudget and you never get it done. How's that project come? Well, we're still thinking. What's it going to cost? Well, I'll keep refiguring that. When are you going to do it? Well, I'm not sure. There was no calculating. There was no planning. There was no, when am I going to do it? She saw an opportunity. She seized it and she went for it. She has done what she could. This applies to Mary from the standpoint of worship. I want to suggest to you this was an act of homage and devotion. If not, why not? How could it be interpreted anything else? She comes and falls down at the feet of Jesus as he's reclining at the table, and she takes this fragrant oil and anoints his feet and wipes them with the hairs of her head. How is that not adoration and devotion for him? Same thing with his head. She did what she could to show her honor for the Lord. Alan McNeil said to the few 
who today spend themselves mainly on worship and meditation, whom Mary again exemplifies in Luke 10. Same Mary. Active workers are warned not to say, to what purpose is this waste? I say, amen. To Mary, it applies to her sacrifice and her love. Mary sacrificed to her Lord. Not a little, but she sacrificed a lot for her Lord. She showed love for her Lord, not just a little, but a lot. She gave the best she had. She gave all she had. Worth 300 denarii. This was extreme sacrifice in order to worship and honor and praise the Lord. This is her opportunity. I'm going to go show my adoration for the Lord. Yes, it's going to cost. Yes, I could have sold this. Yes, it's worth 300 denarii. Yes, it's 12 ounces. But it is absolutely worth it. I want you to notice the extravagance of her love for Jesus. The extravagance of her love. Barclay said this. If love is true, there must always be a certain extravagance in it. It does not nicely calculate the lesser more. It is not concerned to see how little it can decently give. If it gave all it had, the gift would be too little. There is a recklessness in love which refuses to count the cost. I say amen. There is a recklessness in love. That doesn't count the cost. If you love a person that you're going to marry, you don't worry about the cost. If you care about them, because there is indeed, as Barclay says, a recklessness in love that refuses to count the cost. And that case was with Mary here. She broke the flask. So what's the significance of that? She didn't pour a little out. And then preserve it for future use. She broke the flask. She used it all. She doesn't intend to spare any. The container and the contents are not going to be used for anyone else. For Jesus and Jesus alone. And the full expense was given. She's not going to spare anything. Notice the extravagance of her love. To Mary, this statement applies to her priorities. To the priorities of Mary. Giving to the poor is important. In fact, the disciples raised that question. Judas, but Judas has got other motives. But there were some, there were disciples there who raised the question, could this not have been sold for, for a year's salary and given to the poor? We could have helped a lot of poor people with this. And that's important. It's important to Mary. So giving to the poor is important, but this is more important. She's got a priority straight. And so someone said, why the waste? Well, that's important, taking care of the poor. That, you're right. We, we, we could have sold this and given to the poor. And, and the poor will have opportunity. We'll do more for the poor. This is more important. This is far more important. See, Mary understood that. By the way, this is the same Mary in, in Luke 10 who was sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she chose the good part. She knew what was important. She seems to be a woman that's got her head screwed on straight. She knows what's important. 
Not the serving like Martha was. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. And here she is. In John 12 and Mark 14, Matthew 26. She understood that principle. There are many things that are important that have to play second fiddle to worship and service and honor given to God. You say, but this is important. But so is taking care of the poor. Important. But it played second fiddle to what Mary was doing here. Now let's make some application to us. She has done what she could. The question is, are you doing what you can? Will you do what you can? Could Jesus make this statement about you? Would Jesus say she has done what she could? Would Jesus say he has done what he could? Let's make some application. First of all, to opportunities. When opportunities come around, do you raise the question and look at it as this may not come again? I need to jump on this. I need to jump on this opportunity. Maybe it's an opportunity to serve. Maybe it's an opportunity to help. Maybe it's an opportunity to grow. Maybe it's an opportunity to help someone. That this may not come around again. Maybe it's an opportunity to teach someone the gospel or, or maybe lead some erring soul to come back. Do you look at your opportunity? This one may not come around again. And I want to seize that opportunity now. I want to go for it now. I'm going to act now. Have you done what you could? Are you doing what you can? There's some application to be given to us to worship. Are you doing the best that you can? Here's a woman that came and gave the best that she had in service to the Lord. Are you doing the best that you can? Are you sick? I want to tell you, one of the most frustrating things as elders to deal with is when somebody misses and they perpetually miss and perpetually miss and their reason for missing is, well, I'm sick. Well, that's a legitimate reason. People are in the hospital, they've got problems and, and they can't worship, I got that. But there's also the one who uses that sickness as an excuse. And I say it's frustrating because as elders, we go to talk to someone and they say, well, I'm sick. Well, I'm not a doctor, number one, so I don't know how sick you are. And if I were a doctor, I'm probably not your doctor, so I still don't know how sick you are. Even if I had a medical degree. So, so we don't know really what's going on. But the question is, are you really too sick to serve the Lord? I think there are many who are in that condition, but there are many who are not. Are you doing what you can? Are you pushing through, trying to be what you can be? Are you saying, I'm going to do what I can to serve the Lord? I, I'm going to, I, I know I've, I've got problems, but I'm going to try to be there every service I can. I'm going to try to serve the Lord as faithfully as I can. I'm going to do all I can do. I want the Lord to be able to say of me, He has done what He could. Are you sick? You're really that sick. You couldn't go out to eat. You can't work. Oh, no, I'm able to go to work. Well, then, then we, we got a question. You say, got to work. All right, I understand people have to work. There are emergency cases where people work. But did you really have to work? I've known of people that we've announced so and so's working today. And then when questioned, they volunteered for overtime. 
That hardly describes Mary, does it? Who did what she could? An extravagant expense? Say, so you're working? Did you really have to work? You're sick? Were you really that sick? What about your sacrifice and love like Mary? She showed sacrifice. You see, we saw opportunities, worship and sacrifice and love for Mary. What about our sacrifice and love? Are you giving the best that you have? Is there extravagance in your love? Is there recklessness in your love? As Barclay described. That you're not too worried about the expense of time, of money. And finally, what about priorities? Is worship and service a top priority? Serving the Lord, just being His servant, doing whatever He wants me to do, is that your top priority? And if you had 12 ounces of pure nard worth a year's salary, for even minimum wage, would you say, I'm, I'm willing to do, let's use that for whatever we can to serve the Lord. Or we say, well, I want to, I got to save some of that. I, I don't know that, that I want to worship, I want to serve, but I'm not sure I want to spend all that just yet. I don't know. I don't know. You see, with Mary, we saw she seized the opportunity. She worshiped her Lord. There was great sacrifice, great love, and she had her priorities right. Let's go back to our text in Mark 14. The text says they criticized her sharply. If the rest of us present this morning criticized you and the Lord responded to our criticism, would he say he has done what he could? Leave him alone. Back off. Would he say she has done what she could? Just back off. Leave her alone. What if we were to criticize you? What would the Lord say? How would he respond to that? Back to our text. She has done what she could. What she had, she did. Does that describe you? We saw the context. We know the story. We know the setting. We know who was present. We know the parallel accounts. We saw the meaning of that. She took her opportunity and her possession and she put them together, made them work. There was a recklessness in that. And then we see the application to Mary, then to us. There may be one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?